Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, well, this is we've this is our depending on which we release fifth or sixth, depending on where our listeners are hearing of the, of the podcast, the Atlas Project, and we are still in the honeymoon period. Exactly, we're elated. We are full of honeymoon <laughs> bliss. You have been all over the Atlas. We saw each other in Canada, and then That's right. you've been in Australia. And mm, I was in Australia. I was in Singapore briefly after that. Now back in London, Singapore. You that like it's is a very clean, efficient, and like like economically efficient and clean place i hear it's it's also a kind of in a way it's a simple country in the sense that it's a city right it's a city that is also a country and i i think that the problems of running a city are smaller in scale than the problems of running a country um mind you you know what's interesting about singapore is where it is in the world right it is kind of this um interchange in a bunch of global supply chains it's a kind of gateway to asian commodity markets um and and so it's one of those it's one of those cities that straddles asia and the west if you will and if you just think of how big uh china has started to factor in how we think about the world um singapore is going to be an important city in the 21st century actually which is a bit depressing. It's not one of my favorite cities, I have to admit. Was that where they came, the U.S. citizen, a couple of years ago? I think so. Yeah, they've yeah. got very strict drug laws. And he, yeah, he, his was like vandalism or something, graffiti. Oh, oh, like and he, heresy. Yeah, I mean, he was. Came, I remember that was a big diplomatic kind of they make, issue. They also they pick object lessons, like the person who chews gum in public and kind of makes international headlines. That that's part of their campaign around reminding each new generation that we'd like to keep things clean around here oh well, hey i mean yeah if you live in a dirty city i'm sure like you know there's some appeal to that you know sometimes you gotta <laughs> you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs or breaking Lo- the skin with canes london london is an interesting city to live in because i mean it's it it, 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 it the whole city has this patchwork feel because it's just been around for centuries right i mean there are stone buildings here since there has been stone and 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 so you walk down the road or the sidewalks and you have multiple generations of repair everywhere you go and the the you know i ha- i think i have a bit of sort of the ocd gene in me and that part of me is is endlessly restless about this city that it's it's not that it's unclean but it is untidy and and you couldn't possibly tidy it up because that's just sort of the i guess new york i mean new york, well new york maybe is also unclean Anyway, we're getting off topic here. It's an accretive what, city. I learned that term from a guy who wrote a book called The Hidden City of, of Philadelphia. The Hidden and basically mm. talked about Philadelphia as an accretive city. It's like layer on top mm. of layer on top of layer, as opposed to he thinks like New York or L.A. sometimes or Detroit is happening to like a new industry comes in and just the, the slate gets wiped clean and the city changes. Or it's like mm. he's this Philadelphia's like accretive. It's sort of layer on top of layer. It doesn't. There's never been like a wiping the slate clean and there's the new city kind of thing. It's very interesting. 
Good that's book. that's a that's a great word. We should try to find a way to bring that into I, I, I you know more like when you go to the IHOP and you say like, I would like I would like my my pancakes to be presented in an accretive accretive. Way. Way. You know, I had to look it up when I first read the book. I had to look it up. I was like, well, I don't know what this word, is. and it's a great word. So you we were just talking. You were in Australia and talking about leadership and the changes in leadership. And I was thinking, you know, in the United States, we just finished the kind of hmm. funeral services for. President George W. Bush, 41. We had 41 and 43, two Bushes. And, hmm. yeah, it's interesting because he represents that old school leadership where, like, he was into being present, like civil servant, like, clean out your inbox, like, make sure the federal government is running hmm. well. And, and, you know, you you have this, I mean, it, people used to joke when he was running against Bill Clinton, like, he, about the vision thing, like, where's the country going? Who do we want to be? And he just was allergic to that. I mean, he he's a different kind of leader. And the thing is, the world was changing so much at the time mm. he was president. And he didn't say much about it. You know, he. I mean, you could you look now and some of the decisions he made. I mean, even before he was president, he's the guy that, as the Republican National Chair Committee, like in the White House, tells Nixon, you should resign. I mean, he helped rehabilitate the CIA. Uh, he he, you know, was a guy that didn't finished the job in Iraq to many people in both parties a frustration mm. which turned out I think to be a prudent maneuver mm. he raised taxes mm. which probably undermined his election because he realized that it's what he needed to do a deal for the health of the country I mean there's so many yeah. things Bush senior did but but he was a kind of leader that was indifferent to some of the emotional things we look for from leaders today and that mm. was probably all our mm. virtues or, or mm. our vices at the same time right and that that made him i mean people kind of look back on it longingly because trump is all vision all big picture not no kind of sense that he even runs the executive branch <laughs> well he is staff for that yeah exactly I, there's, there's a lot of things to pick up there um you know the the first thing you said really stuck with me that you know he was president at a really interesting time and so that was what 1988 to 92 right yep and what's interesting is so that straddles in in uh, in age of discovery my first book you know when my co-author and I were trying to you know it's hard to periodize periodize periodicize to periodize time and say so you know when did whatever the current moment is when did it begin but we felt that you know it's important to put some markers in the sand and we we looked at 1990 as a kind of arbitrary marker of when we were very clearly starting to shift from a world that was one way to the world that is as it is to now. And if you think of, you know, what he presided over, uh, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, the end of the Cold War, the collapse of apartheid, right, the release of Mandela, um, I suppose in, a, in, a, in, 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 in technology it was kind of the the early emergence i mean people who were in the know understood that they were entering a networked age absolutely yeah absolutely so we've yeah. been thinking yeah. that yeah right so 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 he was he was there at what you know in my arbitrary uh way of of kind of crudely cutting up the 20th century he, he was kind of there at the beginning of the now yeah and he hands over leadership to a baby boomer who it, mm. it's interesting because one of the things i think about george about the bushes they were born adults Right. He's 18. This is amazing. He's 18 and, and enlists in World War Two as as he enlists as a, an aviator. For, he was shot down at 18. He learned how to fly combat planes in a year. Like he, I, I think it would take me like seven years if I learned all that to fly. And he, 
But he just, duty kind of calls, you, you, you know, he comes back, they have kids right away. And every other person that became president after that, Clinton, his son, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, they were all soul searchers. They were boomers and there were people looking for themselves. Mm. They all, they were, none of them were born adults. You know, like, mm. you know, George Bush, mm. his son didn't seem to kind of get his life centered until after he was 40. I mean, like, you know, mm. Bill Clinton, mm. single, Bill Clinton that, and Barack Obama, so both parents, single um, parent families, you know, absent fathers. I mean, you have, it's just a very different contrast and the world is coming of age and looking for mm. who it is, you know, which is another interesting that, thing. That's very interesting, you know. So it connects to a lot of threads. One, so growing up as a kid, I I love fantasy novels with sort of wizards and witches and knights and armor and all that kind of stuff. And as I grew up and I look back on, why did I love those books so much? I think one of the reasons is that these characters lived in a world that was kind of black and white morally, like there was good and there was evil, and the evil was so bad that if you didn't take arms against that evil and defeat it. Nothing else mattered, right? So, so the kind of questions of like, how do I come of age? What, what is the leadership task in front of me was very clear. And it was that clarity that was attract, attractive to me. I had, um, so you talk about George Bush senior sort of it's not, coming of age. Before you move on, on fantasy novels. And I would say the change <laughs> of that is George R. R. Martin and Game of Thrones because mm. the black mm. and white is not there. Like that's not right. that's not the way the the story or, or you know or the right. show functions. It, it, right. It's it's it, it's so different than say Lord of the Rings. Right, right, and and so that's what we consider kind of modern about it. Yeah, right. I, and that's is why that people is, love it so much. Is that yeah. is that is that it recognizes that we lived within this sort of artificial simplicity, and then it says, well, let let's complicate the genre then, and yet. You know, what you just brilliantly remind me is that, well, you know, artificial or not, there have been generations that have been, have been born into that kind of simplicity. Uh, another example. Or even if uh, it's not so, simple, it's there. There is maybe, a kind of uh, there's not as much moral confusion because mm -hmm. there are traditions and things that 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 shape epic, you know, epic narratives and, and, and tr that shape things. And, and, and again, we might look at it as simple, but it, it's deep. And, and, and there's a moral kind of vision that mm -hmm. those kind of traditions Bring right, right. Pre-modern yeah. reality. You're right. Maybe simple. Simple was maybe the right word in my head, but the wrong word. I mean, simple but not shallow. Not yeah. Right. Right. Simple as in clear. Yeah. Yeah. And and within a moral framework, obvious what whether whether one is willing to take arms against that struggle is is kind of then becomes the personal defining choice for your life and for your generation because the the call was clear. Yeah. Yeah. Who answered who answered the call, right? And so interestingly, I had breakfast yesterday morning with um a South African friend of mine, um older 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 than me by sort of half a generation or so or so. His father, uh, his name is David Story, uh, and his his dad Peter Story was I think like chairman of whatever the South African Conference of Bishops was at the time was was basically Desmond Tutu's boss, mm -hmm. um, and and so David was born into uh, a family that has had uh, you know an important spiritual leadership role in South Africa for kind of generations going back to sort of the arrival of of colonials into Southern Africa, sort of the Rhodesia days. Uh, but David was born into a similarly clear moral moment, right where it was sort of it was the eighties. Well, he's born in the in late sixties, but sort of you're coming of age in the seventies and the eighties, where there is apartheid, where there is clear movement against these things, where uh, you know 
what to organize and where to put your leadership ambitions is, is very clear. And then there is this remarkable transition from uh, a long governing uh, regime to a new regime that has, you know, it has a deep Marxist philosophy and thinking. It has powerful community organizing skills and knows nothing about how to run a country, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? It knows nothing about how to run a bureaucracy. And so there's this nation building moment that you're coming of age into. And, and, and it's very clear. I mean, where were you when, right? Did yep. you respond to that call for, for us? Um, and, you know, millennials and post-millennials there. Well, and so maybe interestingly, you know, has now we're really jumping around, but what was the election of Donald Trump, a kind of clarifying moment for the generation that is you know, sort of coming of age right now and says, oh, okay, very clearly there is this, this moral contest in front of us. And that then provides us with a, a sort of organizing framework. Maybe So maybe it's just sort of you and me in kind of the interregnum <laughs> right, right, right. Now, <laughs> where things <yeah>. were vague. <laughs> yeah. Now, I think the Trump thing is an interesting point, though, about it mm. is a, a I mean, I, like you look at the last midterm election in this country. It was a, a, it was a route. I mean, 40 seats. Democrats picked up 40 seats. And the demographics, I mean, the, the Demo- and, and they elected a lot of women, minorities, I mean, the Democratic mm. Party in the, in the United States is the new coalition and it's diverse, right? It's, it's, and, and demographics, I mean, to some degree are destiny, right? Like, yeah, you know, but Trump is, is kind of, there are people that, you know, you look at like, uh, the number of college age Republicans, you know, he, he won the nomination, I think it was mostly non college age Republicans. And a lot of those college mm. educated Republicans voted Democrat. You know, and so this, the, you know, the, 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 sort you're, of, you're talking in the midterms. Yeah. In the midterms. Yeah. yeah they're yeah, they're yeah. kind of, so the, the demographics mm. are changing. And yeah, it's sort of like the reassertion of a kind of, Hey, we like, we, we kind of like the America that we had or, or that we think we had. And mm. some of these change, I'm sure there's parallels to Brexit. You know, I mean, there's, mm. there's this kind of fear of, 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 of a real change in e- economy, identity, immigration patterns and stuff. And I think that that's, the Trump thing is a sort of protest, you know, but it's, you know, it, you wonder what longevity anything like that can have when it's, it's really interesting too. I just found this statistic. There's a guy who works for, I think, the American Enterprise Institute. He, as he mm. predicts that in like 2050, something like, uh, 70% of Americans will live in, in 13, in, in 17 states or something, right? And then you'll have this vast majority that live in, in, rural america or the vast minority live in rural america but we'll have twice as many senators as the as the people that live in the most populated 17 places so we have these <laughs> i mean in america the demographics are so interesting and because we have this mm. you know the, the kind of 18th century compromise with the bicameral house and senate we're feeling mm. it now because mm. the people that are in rural america uh, that that maybe are 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 resistant to sort of where things are going and the new democratic coalition, you know, is, is, mm. is, you know, cause anxiety. They're still going to be able to assert a lot of power because of the electoral college and the Senate. So it's just an interesting mm. polity that we have that, that I think is going to increase tensions as things kind of emerge and unfold. There was a really interesting paper that I read, uh, last week, uh, just doing some research on how, and sort of the, this post-truth political moment that we're in and, and, and reading some research papers on it. And and one of them was talking about 
sort of th- this issue that you've broached, which is here is how the political system is structured, how the House of Representatives, how the Senate is structured, the Electoral College, all of this stuff, and how over time, demographically, that structure is going to be less and less well-suited to sort of what the population is. And so, and and I think there was, there was a big kind of two-part editorial story in the New York Times about a month ago talking about, you know, the need for uh, electoral system reform. And so very interesting where this paper landed. And I'm curious, and I'll, I'll look it up, we can throw it in the show notes, but I'm curious what you would think about what it recommended is, so very clearly, there needs to be some kind of systemic reform. Politically, it's impossible because it's never in the interest of the party in power to do these things that would, you know, maybe abolish their advantage and make everything fairer. So the way to do it, would be to pass legislation with a kind of 50-year horizon to say, so we're going to pass this and it's going to come into effect in 2050. And we're going to make it very hard to undo because you need some supermajority to undo it or something like that. And I thought, huh, as a political exercise, that's an interesting idea. What do you think of that idea? You know, well, it's interesting. I think that the, 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 the sunset clause thing is the only way anything like that would get done. You're right. Just because it, there's too much vested interest in, in, if you're the, if you're the party, like, if you're the, de- yeah, like getting rid of gerrymandering or something like that. Right. Like, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're the Democrats and you look like the demographics are in your favor, you're like, well, the system eventually might serve us. If you're the Republicans, mm-hmm. the, there's certain things that, demographically and with the way the system is they're like hey the minor as a minority we could we have these checks and balances we, yeah i think that that it, it's interesting that there was this there was this piece in the atlantic this week it was written by john dingle who served in congress longer than anyone living and the uh, it was it, it was in the idea section and he said i served in congress longer than anyone that's the title here's how to fix it abolish the senate and publicly fund elections so he's like he was in the house and he's just basically <laughs> like abolish the senate uh, that that hmm. that is you know mm. that, that that is one of the biggest problems, and this is that where that stat mm. came from. Actually, this is where I found mm. it. That um, the stat about the about the uh, population thing. Uh, this is it. Mm. In 2050, 70 percent of Americans will be living in just 15 states. That 70 percent will have 30 senators, and the remaining 30 percent of the people, mainly those mm. living in the smallest and poorest states, will have 70 centers, centers. Centers. Mm. So there you have. And then also, the, it's you. It's funny. You look at like Hillary Clinton won all the most prosperous counties in the country. She didn't win tons of counties. Trump won way more counties than she did, hmm. but hmm. he won less populated, less economically prosperous. So you just so much of this stuff is set up for cold civil war, right? I mean, you just hmm. you know that that it's it it's just uh, it, yeah that something has to change. And I don't know if they abolish the Senate is it ever be possible or something like that. But I think you're right that without a sunset clause. That everybody could agree that we all know that these are coming in the coming decades. There's no way I think you'll get big systemic reform like that. So, but what's interesting is, so I read that paper and I felt uh, like I felt a little bit of kind of, I, I allowed a crack of optimism to come in when I looked at my American neighbors and said, oh, maybe that's how they'll fix it, right? They'll fix it for 50 years from now. But thanks to your uh, excellent analysis, now I'm thinking that no, no, that wouldn't work either because the demographics are so clearly like time is so clearly on one party's side. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> that 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 you know, it, it the farther you roll forward, the more intractable. Like no, we are we are so going to need the system the way it is now in 2050. There's no yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, and again, even the Republicans, <laughs> you look at Dingle's solution, even the Republicans abolish the Senate. No way. 
because even though we'll be a minority mm-hmm. with the Senate, we can be a powerful and with the Electoral College, maybe even we can once in a while make a run at, at the presidency. And so you just have this and the courts, we already set the courts in, in, in a place where we like them. And so it's just uh, I mean, you know, yeah, I, I, I mean, part of this article talks about how like just the, the 18th century, the system, the compromises they made are just so I mean, the country's like four million people. I mean, it's just it's just a totally different. And and the mm-hmm. and the ge- there was, I mean, there was still geographical diversity that created tensions, but nothing like we have today. I mean, it's just, hmm. it's uh, yeah, I don't know, I don't know, but I'm for systemic reform. I think it'd be great. Just I don't know how you do it. It's also, I mean, I mean, we had so much fun last month in Toronto. I love right? Toronto. I want to be an honorary imagine, Canadian. Imagine so. Thank you, and, and you're you're more than welcome. Imagine how much fun a constitutional convention would be. Ah, oh, the only I problem mean, was, there was, you, no, there was no air conditioning. <laughs> it was, it was hot. Like there's no air conditioning. It's hot. That's the only downside. Right. Or maybe that was I mean, the, that maybe that was the framing of the declaration was hot. I don't know. I feel like it was hot at the constitutional convention too, but. I feel I feel like it would be like it would be at least a one week affair. You know, every night you would have a different regional party, right? So like you know, Monday night would be West Coast party. You know, maybe Tuesday. Night oh, absolutely, be party. absolutely. I mean, it would be amazing. It would be amazing. I, I I think that maybe that's how you get people interested in it. Is yeah. Mm. Well, and also politically on the other side of the the Atlantic. So Macron backed down on his gas tax, like. Well, well, welcome to France. Okay, right. I like that. You, well, probably, you probably know more about France than I do. I'm certain you know more about France. Well, I'm not sure if I, I'm not sure if I do, but I mean, one thing that is well known, it's just sort of you know common knowledge over here about how French politics works, is uh, there is a there is a strong culture of mass public protest. Okay, and and so this is just like the. The latest in, you know, every, every oh, couple sorry. of years, when, whenever there's a. I was pulling up a story about, about Macron at, to look at these things and it just created a video that was, people were shouting. I was like, whoa, whoa. So, <laughs> so, so it's actually, it's, it's, it's very interesting that, you know, in, in contrast to, you know, in the U.S. case where you can have maybe a couple hundred thousand, you know, people march on Washington. Um, and and it's not quite clear what purpose that serves in 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 France. What you tend to have is masses coming to the streets. Um, you know, often there is some destruction of public property involved in this stuff, or private property involved in this stuff, and and doing so in a kind of semi-organized fashion. Like every weekend, we're going to take to the streets and we're going to do this again, and it becomes a kind of form of. I, I guess it's sort of the, the 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 peculiar French form of civil disobedience. Whenever there's you know uh, you know change to sort of public transit prices or to um, you know like wage legislation or pension legislation, I mean I don't have the statistics in front of me, but there's probably been a good twenty thirty cases of this over the last ten fifteen years in French politics, and and so it's kind of interesting that there is this. This element—it's almost like a people's referendum, a, a very spontaneously loosely organized. But people know it's coming. Oh yeah, you know, we're going to do that. We're going to participate. And there's a strong expectation that the government is going to take this seriously. It's almost part of the policy process. And and so that's what's fascinating about France. And you know, depending where you are in the political spectrum, depending on whether you're inside or outside government, it's you know, it's fascinating. It's great. 
It's the reason why you can't get anything done in France. It's enormously disruptive. But it is a kind of – it is an aspect of the culture of democracy in France that I, – I mean I think that for people who participate in it, there is a, a an almost conscious recall of the revolutionary history of of the country. In, in, in coming to the streets this way. And what's interesting too, right, is we have, so this is protesting, right, like a, a gas tax, like they wanted to put a petrol, like a fuel tax, right, that people didn't want. And yet they do want a reinstitution of the, of a sort of tax on the rich, right? So you have like Macron comes in, you know, following a socialist, right? You have, you have who was the guy, uh, who was the guy, the short guy uh, before? Allende. Uh, Amont, Allende? Before the, before the socialists, for, who was it? Uh, uh, oh, uh, uh, Sarkozy. Sarkozy, it, right? Yeah. So he's kind of center, the center, center right. Here he'd be center left, but there he's like center right. And, and then you you go to the socialists, and then you get Macron, who wants to again sort of be in the middle, come from the middle, but he wants mm. to kind of cut taxes on on wealthy people that to you know, I guess for economically stimulative purposes once a gas tax probably for i mean these are kind of just centrist policies right whether you agree with them or not like for carbon tax carbon emissions and other things and so people freak out like we don't want the gas tax we do want the tax on rich people back i love it <laughs> i mean it's uh it, so i guess it's a uh, i don't know how deep we want to go into this but you know really every liberal democracy is very different right and um and has worked out different compromises and and france is a country where you know there's still a very strong labor movement and and the labor movement has won some pretty big concessions um for the for the french worker over the last several decades i, I mean i think that i'm not sure i don't i don't keep close tabs on the politics of france but i think the i think the work week now is 35 hours or has it now been taken down to 32 hours? So, you know, reducing the work week in order to maintain um, fuller employment for for workers. And I, I mean, I remember from, you know, back in the day when I was a management consultant, um, you know, the challenge for business in France is that it's it's very difficult to fire people in, in, in sort of the, the French welfare state. And so you very reluctantly hire people. Because once you hire them, you're stuck with them for a long time. So, you know, whereas in the U.S., oh, my God, this is a good week. Let's hire people. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If, if, I mean, if, if, if next week is bad, we'll just fire them. Yeah. You know, yeah. In, in a lot of European countries, France is like this. Germany is like this. Uh, the U.K. is not. There, There's a much slower response in the private sector to sort of, you know, when it's raining mon money because um, it's a very, you know, what the economists call an, an inflexible labor market. What's what's challenging here too? I think in the United States, you, like you have a like it, it's. I was reading this article about Scandinavia recently, and they're like everybody looks at Scandinavia as sort of the, a liberal paradise, but like on certain things, they're even more conservative than the United States on minimum wage and things. There's there's certain certain policies which are very sort of free market capitalist, but then a hugely generous welfare state. So you have these. The thing is, like it seems like you they combine a kind of high stakes win loss economy with a really generous deep welfare state right so so that you mitigate some of the big wins and big losses right with guaranteeing healthcare education and things like that you uh, you know when subsidizing when people are unemployed and things like that you it seems like you know in the states we have a sort of like 
we have a, a, a high wind casino kind of economy and and a minimalist kind of welfare state. So it just really accentuates wins and losses. And I think you know in the in the big picture, you know, there's there's no right answer. What there is is coal. When it comes to ta- bring back the coal. That's the answer. Coal. We're gonna be a beautiful coal. <laughs> I guess there is a right answer. It's whatever Trump is tweeting exactly today, today. Um, or like this minute. But I, I mean, the thing that I feel just doesn't get talked about enough is you can't you can't talk about tax without talking about culture because tax policy. Although, like tax sounds like the most boring, you know, subject imaginable. It is actually kind of the core question, and it is uh, it has to be consistent with. Uh, some of the deepest values of the community in terms of like, what is the good life? Right. And, and so you get, uh, so uh, at this conference on the future of work in Melbourne, uh, I guess now a couple of weeks ago, you know, depending, depending sort of what side of the political spectrum people are coming from, uh, a lot of people throw around this idea of, of like a guaranteed minimum income, like some kind of universal basic income as a, you know, some kind of, this will correct everything by just giving people who can't find jobs because of automation um, money, right? And sort of a guarantee, not just sort of welfare payments, but but a salary. Um, that that's a big topic for another podcast. I don't I don't even know if I really know what I think of that. But one thing I know for sure is that you could never drop that into you know like a country like the United States without some kind of radical transformation in the whole culture of the society, right? Because tax policy is an expression of sort of where the culture is at in terms of what is, what is mine, right? And, and what is earned. And, you know, you walk around Scandinavia, there's, there, there's a, there is a sense, rightly or wrongly, this is sort of for the philosophers to figure out that, you know, my wealth, my good fortune uh, is, you know, partially self-made, but also heavily dependent upon what I've been afforded through my education and the supportive community and all. And that's just sort of how they think about things. So within that culture, it makes sense that, you know, part of what I earn, actually, it's not really mine. It's sort of, you know, it's come to me by virtue of what everyone has given me. So, People take it back and everybody would like to pay lower taxes. But in that culture, it totally makes sense. In, in a culture where it's much clearer to people morally that, you know, if I build a great business, make all this money, then then I made that. That was me that did it. Why would I share that with people who didn't take the same steps that, that I did, right? So actually, it becomes a, a kind of profound insight to these deep moral questions, like where is society is at on these deep moral questions of, you know, as the philosophers call it, moral dessert, right? What am I deserving of this? Did I earn it? Did it come to me because of luck and status and the situation that I was born into? Um, and, and there I think is where, uh, you know, the United States is, is quite exceptional in having a strong belief in, uh, moral dessert is is a kind of individual calculus. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. and it's interesting. It's why, even though the system is sort of fixed right now, I mean, in the interest of, I mean, of course, it's not completely rigged or anything, but but it is to some degree, you look at how the 1% is the, is the only people that don't experience stagnation and there's more and more stratification mm-hmm. class-wise. But like, in any other country, people would have a revolutionary ferment, but like, you drive past these McMansions and people aren't pissed. And it's like, 
And it's like they know the system's rigged, but they're like, yeah, that's what's going to make it even better when I win. Like, there's some, you know, but I do think you're totally right. And you know, like we're we're in the United States, we're so allergic to the idea of redistribution. Like that's the and it's funny. That's what all taxation like. Government is really good at two things, right? It's it's not a scalpel. It's usually more of a broadsword, and it's good at collecting money and redistributing it. Like that's you know putting it into area. Like that's what government does. But you can't. We have such a sort of allergy to the term redistribution that like it, hmm. it, it just you can't use it. So let's bring that to kind of, you know, the incoming uh, class of representatives in the U.S. now, like the Ocasio-Cortezes of the world. And sort of the question of is the path for sort of victory, uh, for presidential victory for the Democrats sort of somewhere in the progressive wing? Or is that a path to electoral disaster because it is just going to have such a – you're just going to get this, such a strong immune response from American culture that says, you know, we don't want it. Get it out of here. Those are bad words. There's no yeah, place yeah, for them yeah. in our discourse. Yeah, it's it's the words, but not the policies. Interesting. I saw a poll where even a majority, a slight majority of Republicans, over like 50%, 53% or something, I think in the poll I saw, would support Medicare for everybody, right? Which is what's more redistributive than that, like a step towards. Hmm. But like, but somehow like Medicare and Social Security have been around long enough that they're not, people like disassociate those from redistributive like it, it, it's it's not rational, but it's so like people, if they support things that are more redistributive, it's because there's a narrative craft around the policy that makes it sound mm. we paid into it or something. And so like mm. it's not so now I don't think the Cortezes of the of the of the country are the future in that it, you look where they win too. They win in safe districts. Like she ran unopposed. Mm. She she narrowly mm. beat out a more sort of mainstream Democrat in the primary, and then there's yeah no Republican wins in that district in Queen Queen. So it's it's right. you just kind of right. uh, and I I mean I think that that's the challenge in American politics. If there will be a kind of tilt towards a kind of more redis- redistributive system that that kind of breaks some of the stagnation, it will come it will come by people that are good at telling a story that convinces mm. Americans that redistributive policies re- really aren't that. <laughs> Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess where I go with that is it will come down to people telling a story in new language that we've never heard before. I mean, Obamacare because- was an attempt at this and Bill Clinton's health care reform, which died, but was an attempt. De- there were Democrats mm-hmm. wanting to show, show to Americans that government does more than taking money from the middle and upper middle classes and distributing it down. That actually government can make something work for you. And there's a health care problem. I mean, so it was an attempt to sort of mm-hmm. show that. Government can do good for everybody, not just for people of really modest means. And, and 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 yet you look at although the Affordable Care Act is getting more and more popular polling wise, but some of that was its unpopularity in the beginning was oh it's a government takeover of healthcare it's socialized it was nothing like that I mean it was nothing like that it was just basically mm-hmm. saying okay it, you know could we get some better in- policies on insurance if we make a devil's if we make a fool's bargain with the insurance company and say we'll make a mandate and try to get more people in the system, well, if you can get more people in the system, then we can cover people with pre-existing conditions because you're getting more healthy. If you have an insurance-based system, this it's all actuarial. You need a bunch of healthy people in it that that aren't getting sick all the time, so that you can not you can actually charge a livable rate for people that have chronic and pre-existing conditions stuff like that. If you don't have a bunch of people in the thing, so it's just basically a private market-based solution 
with some government carrots and sticks and things. And, and, and as people realize that, they're, I think they're less against it. But man, it was so, Republicans are so good at branding things in this country that it's mm. like, you know, it, I mean, George H.W. Bush comes up with cap and trade for pollution problem, right? Market-based system. Now, if you if you if you're for cap and trade, you're a socialist. <laughs> so you know, so you said something really interesting there about you know as people realize, and I suppose this is one of the big big questions that you know we're all kind of soberly wringing our hands over, which is what is the capacity for voters to be informed. And, yeah, yeah. you know, to, to under, to understand policies, um, to, you know, sufficiently that they can make votes in what is sort of in their sort of sober opinion, um, in their interest or, 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 or the best way forward. Like, you know, in my dark moments, I, I, I start to, I, I worry that our Kool-Aid is running out. <laughs> And if there's no more Kool-Aid to drink, I'm not sure what I believe anymore. Well, yeah, well it's interesting you said, like, I think you live in London, right? I think the idea of doing a referendum on Brexit is insane, right? Because you, what, what mm. person could possibly know all the implications of staying in or pulling out of Brexit? They're so complicated from security, immigration, trade, and all sorts of commodities. Mm. I mean, this is why we and have so, elected, this is why we have right, elected representatives, so, right? Like, right, right, right. And, and so you kind of, you 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 very selectively pick that so you're presented with this responsibility and you you handle the overwhelming complexity by picking the the one thing that seems true and uh, there was a great book uh called um post truth marketing that I actually wrote a letter about uh I guess a few months ago now I basically said that in in the world we live in now where uh, sort of in this in this social media age where everyone has a quote unquote truth machine to manufacture whatever truth they want that that no one really trusts the engines of truth anymore and all we and what we've done as social animals is go back to our kind of earliest most native instinct of what to believe which is well, what does our group think? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, yeah. and, and and so that's how people voted Brexit. They kind of like tribally says, well, you know, what are the people that think and talk and feel like me? What do they feel? That's what I feel too. And and that was the only way for you know for voters, including myself, really, to grapple with the enormity of what I've been asked. As an aside, so strangely, I I was eligible to vote as a Commonwealth citizen, as a Canadian. Commonwealth citizen living um, and studying in the UK at the time, I was eligible to vote in the Brexit referendum. Oh, Trump would love that. I mean, yeah, he would love that. <laughs> like what? What? You like why? Aren't you Canadian? Well, well, yeah, but anyway, that's the rules of your referendum system. So I completely agree. The other thing, and this is kind of unrelated, so I can't make an elegant segue, but. Uh, I was thinking of it earlier. So we talk about Trump and Brexit often in kind of the same breath as kind of similar, similar political forces, uh, maybe led to these two same surprises. What is very, very different about the Brexit debate, uh, which I, I live in the midst of uh, sort of every day as part of my reality is that, you know, unlike there, there's no Trump figure, right? It's, it's not personified anywhere. 
And so, you know, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you know, what do you think about this person? But it's a living, breathing, you know, I mean, extremely unique <laughs> talking thing, person that embodies your approval or disapproval. Whereas Brexit here is, it is this kind of vague, overhanging um, outcome of a social process that we ran that now, you know, shadows over everything. And there are people that are still for, and there are people that are against, but it's not embodied in, in anyone or anything. And, and so that makes the whole debate kind of mm, draining. Yeah, it might. Right? This, yeah. Brexit might kill the second prime minister, right? I mean, Cameron, it was undid him. It might undo Theresa May. It might undo Theresa May, yeah. And they're yeah. in the party that like have most of the anti-Brexit, have pro-Brexit people, right? I mean. Hmm. Mm. And I mean, and unlike Trump, you know, for people who say, so if you're, if you oppose Trump, there's kind of a clear objective. Well, we're going to vote him out of office. Right, right, right. Um, and, and, and it is, in a sense, I mean, it's a false clarity. You vote him out of office, there's still going to be so much aftermath that you're going to have to deal with. Whereas, you know, but anyway, there's, there's some kind of clear escape clause. Whereas with Brexit, there's, what everyone is struggling with is sort of how do we get out from under this cloud, right? If we proceed with it, it's going to stay cloudy because of all these negative consequences. If, if, if we get out of it, well, how do we get out of it? And even so, then there's going to be all these negative consequences because there was the will of the people and how can we defy it? Like it is, it is really a clusterfuck. They've kind of painted themselves into a corner and there's no way out. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it's interesting. <laughs> like how, where you get, like, I mean, I feel like entitlements are the same place here. Like it, everybody knows mm. you have to, mm something has to be done about structuring them and you could do their left right solutions, but it's just, it's a third rail. No one wants to touch it. Right. And so you, hmm. you wind up with this thing, which is, which then it's funny th th that creates more anxiety, right? Cause it's a thing that's unclear, right? What creates anxiety? It's, it's sort of that thing. Uh, uh, it's unchanneled fear, right? When, when, when like if a tiger jumps hmm. in the room, you're not anxious, you're afraid, you know why you're afraid that thing could eat me. But like the anxiety hmm. is like, I feel this and I'm not quite sure so it just mm. becomes it, it, I, the chronic anxiety makes the decisions like worse. <laughs> mm. Mm. So, uh, yeah. And so, you know, to sort of end on a depressing note. <laughs> so where, <laughs> but where I've landed, you know, so we've been, you and I have been talking about like these big thorny, naughty questions, K-N-O-T-T-Y. No, I'm not, not getting uh, these naughty questions for a couple of years now. And, and so now, you know, we're starting to kind of deliberately say, okay, well, what can we do? And, you know, us getting together with that room full of in inspired people in Toronto in November was about a kind of expression of a belief that an important first step is convening. Absolutely. That that getting together is in itself a powerful act of of leadership. And if we have the courage to get together around difficult problems, like, say, entitlement reform, knowing full well that it's impossible, knowing that we don't know how to get out of it, but, but coming together, it creates the possibility for surprising, not solutions, these are too big to be solved, but ways to get unstuck. And and we experienced that. Wow. Okay. That that was a a bold hypothesis, but it there's a lot of ev like really positive stuff coming out of that Toronto event now, which is great. 
what I worry about is, you know, so we need to be able to do that with some big political questions, but we are destroying the capacity to convene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's which, which, that's right. so to bring it full circle to, you know, George H.W. Bush, he, he presided in a, a political culture where he could convene. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There were more relationships. There was less partisanship. Yeah. It was less toxic. I, absolutely. Yeah. yeah I, I think that's yeah. true. And it's interesting. There are studies on like, there's a study on, on, on government in Italy, right? Which, I mean, mm. it's notoriously kind of, you know, the corruption and efficiency. But they found that, you know, that in places where there, in, in individual districts where there was high social trust, right? Mm. Which creates a lot of social mm. capital. The government was very eff- effective. But, but, as a whole in the country, that's not the, the case. But it, but in the, so that when you people like trust each when there's like trust among the citizenry, the government works better. But then the problem is right as you become an increasingly diverse society, a lot mm. of that trust erodes, and then you you kind of mm. like the, the the ability to convene right mm. and, and to and to you know do the art of political compromise and things that just mm. it erodes. And so and this will have to be maybe it's going to be our next our next podcast because for me. The next step of the conversation from there is then, all right, so that really helps to define the the challenge of fake news and especially foreign interference in our discourse. Because the other big thing that looms large here in Europe uh, over the Brexit debate, but over a lot of social tensions, is you've got state actors like Russia that recognize that if they can, if they can in a targeted way, continue to destroy our capacity to convene, then we're just going to stay stuck. And while we're stuck, they've got a governance model that allows them to, you know, progress, move forward, whatever those things mean, but move their strategic agendas along. And that's, that's a big, big question that this country, your country, you know, the democratic world in general has to, has to come to terms with how, because fundamentally our Technology of governance does depend upon convening, does depend upon not not demonizing the other within our polity, but recognizing a common citizenship and coming together. And it's difficult. It's ugly. And and so, yeah, I mean, George H.W. Bush, he, he lived in that world where there was – and there were thick walls still around the United States sort of political community, right? Yeah. Um, that were protecting that culture of honorable opposition, as we call it in parliamentary systems. Yeah, it's interesting too. You know, the the Francis Fukuyama just wrote a new book about identity, and in it, one of the things he, he's arguing. Damn it! How like he gets so many books out. Like, I know. I, the guy's, I, every every time somebody says Francis Fukuyama, like, I gotta get. Like, so I'm still working on. This. Oh, yeah. I, he's, he one of his insights is that in a country like America, you you have like an increasing ability. To create new conceptions of identity, right? Like hyphenated Americans, like, you know, the whole intersection, I think we own mm. part of multiple communities, you know, sexual identity, all these things. At, at the same time that, that our cultural imagination, media and other things are, are, are increasing our capacity to make new and multiple identities, our, there's the erosion of a one common identity that would, hey, we're all part of this polity, this, so that is kind of challenging. The whole convening thing is challenging because as it's almost like, almost a correlative like rise and fall together, you know? And so that I, I think is one of the challenges for a liberal democracy. That's increasingly pluralistic Mm. because you got to have a sense that we're in this together, you know, whatever the us Mm. and the together is, 
and and that shared us and togetherness it, it seems to be eroding consistently over time hmm. so i think we've got a good definition of the problem now we need to exactly exactly yeah. <laughs> and 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 then you know take that francis fukuyama we'll publish that exactly. one exactly he'll probably publish three <laughs> more books but in that time uh, yeah but ours will be better I hope. Be more thoughtful readable yeah. more readable maybe i guess that's, that's pretty well. readable though but i don't know and even he, the great political scientist, says that, like, when he gets to California, like, you know, in California, they have referendums on everything. And it's like a booklet. He's like, I don't have time to read. I'm a political scientist. But you're supposed to read this booklet before you vote. He's like, how are people going to make informed decisions if I can't? I'm a political scientist and I don't have the time and energy to, like, look through all the referendum material. Oh, my goodness. I, I don't, who, okay. So, like, let's not get on yet another topic, but, you know, the whole sort of state level running of elections in the U.S. is another just big. Oh, yeah. 50 systems. Of, you have 50, and, 50 and, systems. And not, and none of them know how to design a ballot. I, why is this thing so complicated? I mean, you have to understand that if you're going to build a ballot for two, like, you've got to write it, you've got to create it for the lowest common denominator. It's crazy. Right. Yeah, I, no, I, it's crazy. I mean, it, that's one of the crazy things. It's like, I, I just think like you can't count votes here. I mean, it's so fascinating how contested so many of the elections are. And it's just like with all the technology we have, it shouldn't be that hard. Right. I mean, no. it shouldn't be that hard. Mm -hmm. But it is. We'll we'll talk about how Estonia does it in a, in a future. Conversation. I love. I would love that. I'm sure. Estonia you literally like literally you you plug your identity card into the computer and you vote. Oh boy, people would have so much from your laptop. People would have even more anxiety about that. It'd be great though. I think it'd be great. I mean, I'm sure they. You know, I I think it'd be great, but people here would freak out. Yeah, I mean, well, we'll have to talk. I mean, they Estonia is on the doorstep of Russia. I mean, they know that there are all sorts of active Russian measures trying to, um, trying to infiltrate every aspect of their society, and they trust that voting system. So. But yeah, I agree. A part of it is cultural. I don't think that Canada would be willing to do that either. There's something. Well, mind you, so one of these days, like, uh, would it be illegal? I don't know. But you know, I'm going to take a picture of my ballot the next time I have to send vote it to me. Canadian send election. it to me. I want to you take it. a picture of yours, yeah. and, and you'll just you'll just laugh like, oh my god, even I can do this. Yeah, our ballot. Well, my ballot wasn't too bad. I, I thought like in Pennsylvania this year, but the one in Florida, mm -hmm. where this one, the Democratic candidate for Senate, Ben Nelson, was saying like, it was weird that his. The Senate candidate was way off in a different spot on the ballot. And so yeah, a lot yeah, of people just yeah. didn't vote for the Democrat. And the thing is, they voted Democrat for other offices. I'm just like, why wouldn't you have a readable ballot? Like, that's just fascinating. That would be another. We could have, you know what? We want to make an easy buck, coffee table book, ballots across the country. Ah, absolutely. That would be, that right. would be, that would be the thing. That would be the thing. We'll, we'll do that. Well, my friend, it's always good to talk, and we'll, we're scheduled to record again next week. So, everybody, if you're liking this podcast, go to iTunes and, you know, say you like it and that kind of thing. Scott, great to connect. Thanks for listening to The Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.